I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, making sense of marijuana laws. There were so many people in prison for marijuana. They were habitual offenders, so they were serving time. But, you know, the warden came up to me and said, I have never met anybody on their first offense sit in prison for marijuana. In 2016, Dante West was arrested on a road trip and charged with conspiring to sell a pound of marijuana. He was innocent and he had no criminal record, but he ended up sentenced to more than seven years in a Kansas prison, thousands of miles from his home in Stockton, California. That's where I lived my whole upbringing in Stockton, California, with my grandmother and my two younger brothers. I really was just a caregiver, you know, in-home support services for my grandmother. Been with her all my life since I can remember. And just me being in that position, uh, being in jail, I just remember calling my grandmother. You know, I told her what happened. And she just cried. She just cried. I mean, her last memory was, you know, me in jail. Dante West's grandmother died while he sat in jail, accused of conspiring to sell marijuana, which at that very moment was legal back in his home state of California. Consider this. A decade ago, there was not a single state where it was legal to use marijuana for recreation. Today, nearly half of Americans live in states where it's legal. And many more are in states where marijuana is legal for medical use. How do we make sense of that? Do we know something about marijuana today that we didn't know 10 years ago? Why is a substance the federal government considers so dangerous it has no legitimate medical use legally available as medicine in 37 states? This season, Top of Mind is finding fairness. We all want drug laws that are fair, rational, and apply to everyone equally. What are the consequences of marijuana's oscillating legal status in America? And who gets caught in the middle? There are clearly criminal justice consequences. That's not all we plan to focus on today, but let's start there. Dante West got ensnared in the nation's patchwork of marijuana laws when he was 21. He and a friend were driving from California to Kansas for a college visit. This was 2016. You know, I enter right up into Kansas, um, and you kind of just see these troopers, like, on the median and on the side of the road. Uh, kind of scanning these, like watching these cars. Um, as soon as we got in, they just followed us, man. They followed us for about 45 minutes. West and his friend were caravanning with another car of guys they didn't know too well. As we continue down I-70, the freeway, you know, we pass this black SUV uh, in the middle of the median. He ends up pulling us over, having dirt on our license plate. And, um... He approaches the car. He asks for the driver for the license or registration. You know, I was a passenger. You know, he asks us a bunch of questions about California and what we're doing out here. He made us get out the car. He searched our car. Um, he found a little m amount of marijuana. It wasn't an arrestable offense. It was a grab, you know, just a, a joint. He said, I'm going to search the rest of the car. And if there isn't any anything else in there, I'm going to let you go and write you a ticket. So he searched the car uh, real good and... Uh, there was nothing else in it. And he would just say, hey, just go off to this gas station and clean your license plate off. He writes my co-defendant a ticket. Uh, we go down to the Shell gas station to wipe the license plate off. And, you know, it was just so crazy. It was like a movie, man. You'll see a, a marked car uh, coming around, circling the gas station. And the same dudes that pulled us over along with another guy, man, they were just staring down. West and his friend had been separated from the other car by then, but they'd planned to meet up at the apartment of a shared acquaintance who lived near Kansas State University. The police followed them, searched the other car, and found several pounds of marijuana. They searched the apartment and found drugs there, too. When the officers questioned the guy who owned the place, he said that West was there to sell him a pound of marijuana. But Dante West barely knew the guy in the apartment. He was not planning to buy or sell marijuana. 
The police came back down to the parking lot and arrested him and the friend he'd been driving with. They charged with conspiracy to distribute um, and possession with the intent to distribute, you know, 450 grams. They arraigned us and then, you know, they gave us this crazy bond, man, $80,000. And I was trying everything in my power to hustle up the money to get out. You know, my grandmother ended up in the hospital. Before he could bond out, his grandmother died. And I literally just couldn't believe it. I didn't even think it was real. They opened up a little wreck area for me, and I just sat I just sat in there, and I just cried. You know, the closest person ever to me in my life just, just left me. And I felt like she wanted me to get back home. So I, I ended up getting back when my brother's choosing a foster family, you know, preparing for the worst, just in case I had to, you know, go to prison. And he hired a lawyer. But when it came time for his trial... West learned that the lawyer had been sick and didn't do anything to prepare a defense. The lawyer planned to ask the judge to postpone the trial. We go in court the next day, the judge denies the motion and says, you, you had this case for you know, a while now, and um, you know, you're going to go to jury trial tomorrow. So I go to trial, and uh, the state's informant um, got on stand and said I was going to sell him a pound of marijuana. That's the only evidence the state has. And at that point, all my co-defendants, you know, two had got probation and uh, two had went to prison. They had took plea deals. And uh, the only plea I was ever offered was eight years. That's why I went to jury trial. I imagined myself getting off, right? But um, it didn't work out that way. And what about the guy who who, um, testified against you? He was never charged. Only later did Dante West learn the guy who pointed the finger at him got a deal to testify in exchange for avoiding prosecution. That was never disclosed in court. The jury convicted West, and he hired a new lawyer for the sentencing phase. He pulled these statistics out and he said, man, 5% of people in the last five years went to prison for marijuana. It's crazy because most counties you would get probation. He put these statistics to the judge, but ultimately, man, he gets on stand and says, man, I don't want marijuana in my college town. You're going to go to prison for it. You know, I was sentenced to uh, serve seven years and eight months in prison for this pound of marijuana. I was able to bond out one more time and uh, fly back to California. And this was like my final goodbye to my brothers. And this was like a pivotal point in my brain. Um, You know, just riding to the airport, You know, I literally took a glance in the backseat and, you know, I just see my brothers crying as we get closer to the airport. And I'm like, what's wrong? And it's like, man, we lost everybody. We ain't gonna never see you again. And it just put a jolt of just motivation in me. As soon as I get to prison, I see these guys, you know, walking by, I'm sitting in the cell. And I'm like, where y'all going? They said, we're going to the law library. And, um... I was just going there every day, you know, once I got the opportunity. I had figured out this clemency process where, you know, a governor could shorten your sentence. And I was just like, man, I'm going to get out through clemency. I wrote 125 state representatives and, you know, four legislators wrote me back. One dude came and see me, a Republican guy named Willie Dove. And he said, I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of prison. I didn't know they were making laws for first time offenders, especially for a pound of reed, getting seven years, eight months in prison. And then you look at the state that's right over in Missouri and, you know, marijuana is going crazy. You know, they're selling out 48 hours and they, and they consider Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri, really the same state. Clemency did not happen for West, but he kept writing motions to get his conviction overturned, arguing that his original legal representation was ineffective and that the prosecution had failed to disclose the deal they struck with their key witness. Finally, after three years and eight months in prison. I ended up getting a call from my attorney saying that the DA has agreed to your motion. I had had a meeting with the DA um, and told him how I didn't want a felony and how it would affect black America and voting and, you know, loans. And I got to take care of two brothers. And ultimately it was exonerated and the good judge granted it. Dante West was released from prison in 2020, and the exoneration meant the conviction was wiped from his record. He now advocates for the release of other people incarcerated for marijuana charges as a legal fellow with the Last Prisoner Project. 
despite the fact that the majority of Americans live in jurisdictions where cannabis has been made legal, there remain tens of thousands of people who are incarcerated on the local, state, and federal level for um, nonviolent cannabis-related activity. This is Natalie Papillon. I'm the chief operating officer at Last Prisoner Project, which is a national nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to cannabis criminal justice reform. The Last Prisoner Project offers pro bono legal counsel with the goal of overturning marijuana convictions, clearing records, and helping people like Dante West rebuild their lives. When I talk about the work we do at The Last Prisoner Project, people are often surprised. You know, whether they live in a legal state or they've just been following the news, everyone assumes cannabis is legal now. Um, Everyone and their grandmother seems to be partaking. No one could possibly be incarcerated for this, but that's not the reality on the ground. And it's pretty wild to live in a country where some people are making millions of dollars um, selling cannabis at the exact same time other people will not ever leave prison for doing the very same thing. These people who are serving life without the possibility of parole, that those are nonviolent marijuana offenses? Nonviolent. Oftentimes, our constituents who are serving life sentences got those life sentences because they were sentenced under habitual offender laws, many of which are relics from sort of our very tough on crime, war on drugs related era in this country. Those past offenses are generally drug related, oftentimes cannabis related. They have nothing to do with, you know, violence. Who is most likely to be in prison on a marijuana charge right now in this country? People who are incarcerated for cannabis are overwhelmingly men, and they're overwhelmingly people of color. So a recent report by the ACLU found that despite the fact that cannabis consumption rates are virtually indistinguishable amongst different racial groups, Black people are nearly four times as likely as their white counterparts to be arrested for marijuana possession. Are are there people who are in state prisons serving cannabis sentences in states where it's now legal to do the things that they were imprisoned for? Unfortunately, yes. There still remain thousands of people who are incarcerated in now legal states for cannabis, which is wild. I think one of the common misconceptions is that when a state chooses to legalize, they sort of open the prison doors and people who were incarcerated for that activity are released. And for people who are serving cannabis-related sentences to be released, the state has to proactively pass legislation to do just that. So this is what um, The Last Prisoner Project is really focused on. So we work with legislators to create legislation that creates these um, state-initiated automatic record clearance and resentencing processes. We know that having any sort of offense, even if it's something as low-level and nonviolent as marijuana possession, can really Uh, hinder someone's life in perpetuity. So it can mean you can't access Pell Grants to go to college. It can mean that you're very unlikely to access gainful sort of family-sustaining employment. It can mean that you're ineligible to access things like TAMP or SNAP or federal nutrition assistance. It can make it really hard to get a landlord to take you on as a renter, right? And these sort of barriers, these collateral consequences of conviction follow you sort of, you know, frankly, until you die. So is there a way, do you think, for for marijuana possession and distribution to not be criminalized, to um, for people not to be put in prison for nonviolent offenses, but also ensure that violent crime surrounding drug distribution is illegal and not encouraged? Like, can we separate the two? All the, you know, research shows that the best way of removing violence from any sort of drug-related activity is to make sure that that's regulated. So, you know, oftentimes I'll point to the example of alcohol prohibition. We saw a ton of violence associated with alcohol sales, um, whether it was Al Capone, it was gangs, it was people, you know, bootleggers importing things, killing federal agents, et cetera, et cetera. It was a very violent activity, but that's only because it was made illegal by the federal government. Um, Now I can go to my corner and buy a six pack of beer and I am not fearing any sort of violence, right? Because it is state and federally regulated. 
you know, we have safeguards so children aren't able to access alcohol, right? Um, the same thing needs to happen with cannabis. And if we are able to legalize, regulate um, the sale and the production of this substance, we will see violence crater. And we will also see a decrease in youth access to the, to the substance. Because it would be better regulated. Um, does the Last Prisoner Project advocate full legalization? We hold the position that we should deschedule and that federal legalization is important to achieve our aims. But when we engage on legislation, we are focused pretty exclusively on making sure that there are criminal justice reform related provisions in any legalization legislation. So you're not going to see us, um, you know, being like legalized weed on the federal level. But if people are working on a bill that does that, we talk to them to make sure resentencing and expungement is are part and parcel of those bills. But would it be enough just to just to lower the consequences? So we're not sending people to jail, but it's still not fully sanctioned by society. Would that accomplish those goals for us? So that would that would help, but I don't think that would go um, far enough in accomplishing those goals. You know, some states have chosen to legalize, while others have chosen to decriminalize. And while we do think decriminalization is an important first step, it doesn't eliminate all of the harms associated with unregulated production and sales, nor does it um, the harms associated with people being sort of cited, fined, and, you know, maybe sent to jail for this at a great cost to those individuals, their families, and the community as a whole. So we think, and there's sort of empirical evidence to support this, that if we are to really mitigate the harms of cannabis-related activity, we must go to sort of full legalization within all states and on the federal level. Natalie Papillon is the Chief Operating Officer at The Last Prisoner Project. The shift to full legalization in the United States is happening quickly. All 21 states that now allow recreational marijuana use have done so in just a decade. But the broader consensus is around medicinal marijuana. 37 states allow it, and nearly 90% of Americans think it should be legal, according to a Pew Research survey done in 2022. The U.S. government, however, says the opposite, that cannabis has, quote, no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. What is the disconnect? And what does it mean for all the people currently using medicinal marijuana, as well as those hoping to, but unsure how? Let's get a doctor's perspective. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's so conflicting, the scientific literature about cannabis. The people that are in favor of it can paint a very rosy picture. The people who are against it can paint a very ominous picture. And, you know, the truth is obviously somewhere in between. And that's really what my book tries to discern. Meet Peter Grinspoon. He's a primary care doctor, an instructor at Harvard Medical School, and author of a book called Seeing Through the Smoke, a cannabis specialist untangles the truth about marijuana. Even in states where medical marijuana is legal, like Massachusetts, where Dr. Grinspoon practices, few doctors have the education or clinical experience they need to comfortably answer questions from patients about marijuana, much less recommend it. Dr. Grinspoon is an exception. He's been treating his patients with cannabis for years. Certainly chronic pain is at the top of the list. I also treat quite a bit of anxiety and quite a bit of insomnia. Those three things, chronic pain, anxiety, and insomnia are the top, the top three. I also treat quite a bit of PTSD, depression, colitis, fibromyalgia. There's a whole variety of conditions. And then not to neglect uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting and other cancer-related symptoms. Why are you comfortable prescribing cannabis for any of those things when so many doctors in your position in states where cannabis is legal for medicinal purposes. So many doctors are not comfortable. Why, why, why are you willing to do that, to go there? Well, first of all, I witnessed uh, when I was a child the med medicinal benefits of cannabis. My older brother, Danny, fought an unsuccessful battle with leukemia. He was diagnosed when I was one. He passed away when I was eight. But my parents illegally, in the early 1970s, procured medical cannabis for Danny, sort of unnecessarily putting their careers at risk. So they actually went to the playground 
in his high school and asked one of his friends to get him some medical cannabis. And the kid apparently looked like he was going to have a heart attack. But he eventually came through because he loved Danny. And my parents bought it for him. And on the way home from the chemotherapy session, he asked my parents if they could stop by and get a submarine sandwich. And my parents' jaws both hit the floor. Like, they couldn't believe he wanted to eat. And to see the effect it had on my brother Danny was amazing. After his chemotherapy, if he used cannabis, he could hold food down and actually play with his younger brothers instead of just lying in his bedroom and throwing up. I associated the kind of sickly sweet odor of cannabis with like healing and medicinal purposes. And when did you begin consuming marijuana? Well, (laughs) I don't advise this to anyone, but I started using it actually at age 13. And I could honestly say I don't recommend it for teenagers, but over the years I have found cannabis to be really helpful for a variety of medical reasons. And also I could honestly say that my writing is a lot clearer, more creative and funnier if I've used a little bit of cannabis. I asked the question because I think anyone who's hearing, oh, he also uses cannabis for uh, sometimes recreational purposes might say, well, why on earth would this guy be a credible objective voice in this conversation about whether or not cannabis is is safe uh, for use in society? How would you respond to that? Well, I think that there's no substitute for lived experience. Now, my expertise and my medical care of patients with cannabis isn't based on my personal use in the past. It's based on the scientific data and on my previous clinical experiences, just like every other condition that I treat as a primary care doctor. To give you an example, I'm 15 years in recovery from opiate addiction. Now, I wouldn't put get addicted to opiates and recover on the medical school curriculum, because obviously that's preposterous. Yet, if you have lived experience with an addiction, obviously you understand and know more about addiction than other people to whom it's only a hypothetical construct. You mentioned that you're in recovery. Were those things related in any way? Did your use of marijuana, do you think, prime you or create even like a gateway into other kind of addiction? The gateway theory has been pretty thoroughly debunked, but there's no medication that is as effective for opiate withdrawal than medical cannabis. So I actually think it really helped me get off the opiates because it was very effective for some of the symptoms I was self-treating with my opiates, the anxiety, the depression. I do think teens are more susceptible to addiction to cannabis than adults, but I don't believe that it's a gateway to other drugs and I don't believe it had any effect later on uh, in my eventual opiate addiction. Let's dive into the specifics of, of what exactly cannabis does to the body. Um, it, when when it's consumed, it what is it what is it working on <laughs> in the human body? Well, we have this really interesting neurotransmitter system called the endocannabinoid system, which was discovered fairly recently. Um, And we have natural cannabinoids in our brains, just like we have natural opiates in our brains. Everybody knows that we have opiate receptors and we have endorphins, natural opiates, uh, like your body's natural way of dealing with pain. Uh, We have natural cannabinoids in our brains and... um, It affects everything like memory, learning, pain, temperature, appetite, weight. And the endocannabinoid system is responsible for homeostasis. It literally controls all of the other neurotransmitter systems sort of on an on-demand way. You're not getting too hot. You're not getting too cold. You're not losing too much weight. You're not gaining too much weight. It really is the central sort of control system for the rest of the neurotransmitters. So that's why cannabis can affect so many different diseases because it affects this incredibly complex neurotransmitter system, not only in our brain, but throughout our immune system. So give me an example of of how cannabis is affecting some aspect of the endocannabinoid system uh, when you're recommending it in a a patient. Well, cannabis... um, is very good for controlling pain. There are cannabinoid receptors both in our brain and in our spinal cord and in our immune system. So it can diminish the strength of the pain. It also can affect the anxiety people have about pain and it can affect their uh, sleep. So people almost always report an improved quality of life. But this is not the kind of like... um you know, you just had surgery, and instead of prescribing a painkiller, I'm going to recommend that you smoke a joint. Uh, exactly. Well, first of all, doctors don't typically recommend that people smoke because that's not great for your lungs. We'll recommend an edible or a tincture or a topical. But I just don't think cannabis is 
that strong a painkiller that if you have very severe pain, like you break your arm, I think then you certainly need opiates. It's really good for like the mild to moderate pain that people get as they get older, a little bit portlier, a little bit more arthritic. You know, say I have a patient who's a construction worker. They come home at the end of the day and they're in pain. They can either take a ton of Tylenol which doesn't do that much. They could take a ton of non-steroidals, you know, your Advil, your ibuprofen, your Motrin, your Naprosyn, your Aleve, your Diclofenac. And those not only can give you gastritis and an ulcer or a heart attack, but they also, I see so many patients in their 50s, 60s, and 70s whose kidneys are just slowly dying because of all the non-steroidals we use. It's a very useful and relatively non-toxic option for mild to moderate chronic pain. But Dr. Grinspoon, how do you how do you square that with the fact that as recently as 2021, the International Association for the Study of Pain said that there is not enough evidence from high quality research to support the use of cannabinoids, cannabis, marijuana, for treating pain? They're just one body. The National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, which was a U.S. government report in 2017, concluded that there was conclusive evidence that cannabis is helpful in treating certain types of chronic pain. A big part of the disconnect, says Dr. Grinspoon, is that for decades, government funding for marijuana research has been heavily focused on its potential harms, not benefits. After all, he says, why would the U.S. government support research into how cannabis might be helpful while enforcing laws that consider it dangerous and illegal? So, of course, we don't have a lot of studies showing that it has benefits because we haven't been looking in that direction. And then the second part of my answer is that there's a real hyper-focus on a certain type of evidence, which is a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial, which is really good because the patient doesn't know what they got, the doctor doesn't know what the patient received, and that's a way to factor out the placebo effect. But the fact is, these are the studies that weren't funded, but there are so many other types of data that people are using. There's a whole field of evidence called real-world evidence, which is using patient-recorded outcomes, medical registries, survey-type studies, longitudinal studies, um, and there's overwhelming, if not abundant, evidence that cannabis is, in fact, helpful for many of the conditions, particularly for chronic pain, for nausea, for chemotherapy, and for anxiety. But it is, to a certain extent, a battle over what constitutes data. For example, the lack of data from controlled clinical trials is why the American Medical Association discourages cannabis use and does not support legalization. Dr. Grinspoon acknowledges that real-world evidence from surveys and such would not be enough to get marijuana approved as a drug for treating a disease like cancer. But to ease the symptoms of chronic pain, anxiety, or insomnia, he says... Why would we limit ourselves? If I have a medicine, for example, for pain that I think is safer than opiates, more effective than Tylenol, and you can make a very good argument safer than heavy chronic non-steroidal use, why on earth wouldn't we use this relatively non-toxic plant-based medication? As a clinician, that doesn't make any sense to me. Hmm. But but the political winds are changing, and, and it seems like, you know, 10 years from now, we will certainly have a lot more of that kind of data to tell us what we're dealing with here. Why not wait until we know for certain? Well, people are using medical cannabis. So it's just a question of whether doctors are going to be working with the patients and helping them do it in a safe and informed manner, or whether the patients are going to be afraid to discuss it with their doctor, which is largely what's happening now. And you get these two parallel care systems. You get the medical marijuana care system and you get like the regular medical system and the doctors, particularly the psychiatrists, have no idea that their patients are using cannabis. What's the harm in that though? What's the harm in, what's the problem with having these two parallel things? You've got the medical system and then people can also go to a cannabis specialist if they need to figure out, you know, if they want to try that. The harm is that cannabis isn't harmless and it can interact with other medications. Many people use CBD. One in seven Americans use uh, that component of cannabis called CBD. But CBD acts just like grapefruit juice. It could raise the level of other medications in your body. So if the doctor doesn't know that you're using CBD, they can't caution you or counsel you about potential medication interactions. What are you not comfortable treating with cannabis? Well, I um, am concerned about it exacerbating psychosis. 
I don't think that it causes quote-unquote schizophrenia. However, I do think if someone is prone to psychosis, it can trigger it earlier. So we do want to make sure someone doesn't have a family history of, for example, schizophrenia. And also, I'm not particularly comfortable treating something like bipolar because if the patient has a history of psychosis, cannabis can definitely re-aggravate the psychosis or can trigger it. And I'm against using it for people who are pregnant or breastfeeding because there's no evidence that it's safe. We need to talk, Dr. Grinspoon, about addiction. The American Society of Addiction Medicine has said, and I think a lot of people have heard these statistics, that up to 30% of adults who consume cannabis are addicted to it, have a cannabis use disorder. So how are you prescribing or recommending cannabis as a treatment in your patients in a way where you can be confident that you're not opening them up to an addiction of some sort? Well, first of all, the number 30% is just flat out wrong. I have a, I have problems with the way they diagnose and define cannabis use disorder because I think they rope in a lot of the medical cannabis patients. And it's clearly not 30%. Other studies say 9%, and I think even that is exaggerated. But that said, some people definitely, truly, absolutely get addicted to cannabis. They use it to smoke away their life problems. I do think teens are more susceptible to addiction to cannabis than adults. If teenagers use cannabis all the time, they could not learn how to self-soothe. They could learn to use a cannabis to treat their hunger, angry, lonely, tired, discomfort, distress. Um, but it's certainly something that can happen. Just as if I prescribed a benzodiazepine or an opiate, I would counsel the patient, this is going to help you hopefully in this way, in this way, in this way, but these are the side effects. With opiates, you can be constipated and you can get addicted to them. We explain to people the warning signs of addiction. And then the key is to follow and to monitor people really closely. That's why I'm not a huge fan of these like medical cannabis card mills where they just give you a card and you never see them again. I do have a private practice, but I prefer to prescribe cannabis in the context of my primary care practice. I know the patient, I know their specialists, I know their history. I know there are other medications and I could see them again in a couple of months. So I could know and they know who I am and they could communicate with me. So it is a risk that people will get addicted. It's one of the many side effects that cannabis can have, but it's a question of educating the patients, screening them, um, and then following up with them and making them feel comfortable talking to you without judgment or stigma so that if they do start to become dependent on it, you can get them off of it. Dr. Grinspoon, you are on the board of directors of a group called Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which um, advocates advocates for uh, for regulation of cannabis for medicinal purposes, but also advocates for making marijuana legal across the board, both recreationally and medicinally. Isn't that correct? It is. And, you know, the point is that legalization doesn't have to be a free-for-all. We're in favor of legalizing with helpful regulations so that, you know, minors don't get access to it. And so that the labeling is good. People know what they're consuming and that the product testing is is comprehensive. So people aren't getting lead, heavy metals, fungus, pesticide. We just are, I guess you could call it harm reduction, but certainly the harms of criminalization of cannabis, the like 25 million arrests just for cannabis possession. This ruins people's lives, uh, especially black and brown people who use cannabis at about the same rate as white people getting arrested four times as, as, as often. What, what right now stands in the way of, of our ability as a society to, to, to have more clarity and be able to, you know, be less confused as individuals and as lawmakers about what cannabis is and does and might or might not do? I think that people have these preset convictions about cannabis. I think the people who are in favor of cannabis a lot of them just refuse to accept that there are harms. The people who are anti-cannabis, a lot of them, even the American Medical Association still puts the words medical marijuana in quotation marks. They've been so heavily propagandized against cannabis that they're having a hard time believing that there are medicinal benefits. So we all have to like look at the data and give up our preconceived notions and really be open to any harm or any benefit. And I think if we do those two things, we'll go a long way towards seeing through the smoke and disentangling what is and isn't true about cannabis. Peter Grinspoon is a primary care doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital who's been treating patients with cannabis for decades. He's a professor at Harvard Medical School and has a new book called Seeing Through the Smoke, A Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. Dr. Grinspoon, thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you so much for these great questions. What is it about marijuana that makes the issue of legalization so hard for us? 
Why are we so stuck in these two competing all or nothing narratives? And what's interesting to me about pot is how widely divergent cultural views about it have been. I don't think any other drug has gone through such reputation transformations. A look at that history might help us to find some clarity. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Hello, my name is Emily Dufton, and I'm a drug historian and the author of Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. So you argue in the book that marijuana is unique in the history of intoxicating substances in this country, different compared to alcohol or LSD or cocaine. What has been different about marijuana's path? Oh, just about everything, right? It's legal in certain places. It's not legal in others. It's considered legally not a medicine, and yet it's considered a medicine in 37 states. And it's simply not like that for any other intoxicant. There's no sort of patchwork that's quite as disparate (laughs) as it is over cannabis availability in the United States right now. Is today marijuana the, is this the, the, the most legal marijuana has ever been in this country? Certainly since the turn of the 20th century, this is probably the most legal it's ever been, sure. So take us back a little bit into that history. When, when was marijuana first widely accepted in the United States? We can go back to the colonial era. There was a recognition that taking doses of extracts from its leaves could be useful for helping with nausea. It was an appetite stimulant. It was a pain reducer. It was used for a variety of purposes, not only in the early United States, but back to ancient China, where there's recordings of people using it for its medicinal purposes going back thousands of years. So when did the pendulum start to swing then against cannabis in the United States? Well, it started changing a little bit toward the end of the 19th century, when the patent medicine industry had really exploded and there were really no controls or limitations over what Americans could buy if it was called a medicine and sold at a drugstore. So you could get heroin preparations, you can get morphine, you could get cannabis preparations. And that started to become a problem. The United States experienced a very severe addiction epidemic toward the end of the 19th century because of the extremely widely available and unregulated drug industry. So the federal government begins to crack down in the early 20th century. So with the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, that required honest labeling of what was in these tinctures so you'd know if you were getting opium (laughs) instead of wondering why you were going through withdrawal without a dose. But it wasn't really until the 1910s, 1920s, that recreational marijuana use started to become associated with let's say, marginalized groups in the Southwest and around New Orleans because recreational marijuana was coming up from Mexico and it was also coming into the port of New Orleans from the Caribbean. So there's now a growing association between cannabis and jazz. And all of this is very, very frightening to the powers that be (laughs) in the early 20th century who begin to pass at the state level, anti-cannabis laws primarily directed toward its base of users, which at that point is heavily Mexican and black. You know, the, the widespread belief in the 1930s of, of reefer madness. By this point, pot has spread to, to pretty much every major city, right? Especially along routes of jazz musicians, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, New Orleans. And the drug and its association with music with black black musicians, black expression, was very scary, right? There was this belief that this drug would make you go, just, just go crazy, and that it was a real threat to the moral fiber of the nation and its social order, its social structure. In the 1950s, you start to see it spread to the beats. So you have Jack Kerouac, you have Allen Ginsberg, you have Neil Cassidy, and they're, and they're of course, finding it through jazz culture in America. And they're writing books about it. They're writing poems about it. They're helping to spread the word of uh, the gospel of cannabis, as one might say. And then in the 1960s, it lands basically on college campuses as the baby boom goes to school. And that's when it really explodes. That's when we finally see like cannabis take over America. 
Pot was deeply involved with the anti-war movement, the, the anti-Vietnam War movement. Uh, it was deeply involved in civil rights protests. Feminists are smoking pot. The Chicano movement is smoking pot. The Black Panthers are smoking pot. The one thing that brought everybody together was pot. Because to them, there was a social significance to the drug. It was a almost the opposite, like the mirror opposite of the staid 1950s man in the gray flannel suit who drank whiskey and supported the Vietnam War and was like, you know, the Eisenhower era that so much of the social movements in the 1960s were actively rebelling against. And what was the government reaction then? And this is where... Um, Richard Nixon makes it a Schedule One substance, and he declares that it is federally illegal to possess or use the drug because it has a high potential for abuse and no medical value, or at least that is what his attorney general, John Mitchell, determines when they pass the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. So in Schedule One, these are the drugs that are the most restricted, the most highly controlled because they're believed to have a very high potential for abuse and no medical value. And this goes down in decreasing levels to Schedule 5, where these drugs have a high medical value and a low potential for abuse. So Schedule 1 has drugs like heroin and LSD. Schedule 5 has drugs like Robitussin, <laughs> you know, things that uh, maybe you need a prescription for, you can kind of get them over, over the counter, things with maybe a small amount of codeine or something like that. Mm. Why did the Nixon administration put marijuana in the most dangerous category? That goes back to Nixon, who really disliked what the drug stood for. Remember, he's president in 1968, 1969, 1970, when there are massive protests against his war policies going on in his backyard all of the time. He sees people smoking pot on the National Mall, wearing their tie-dye, protesting against the war. And he tries very hard to essentially use the drug as a way to quash the anti-war movement. You can't arrest people for protesting, right? That's our First Amendment right. But you can go after their drug use, especially if you associate it with the counterculture that you so dislike. So he kind of originally places pot in Schedule 1, and he says, this will be my compromise to Congress, because Congress is a bit unsure about this placement. He says, I'll bring together a commission and they'll study marijuana use in America and they'll make the recommendation of where it should belong within the Controlled Substances Act schedule. So he brings together this commission that's sort of nicknamed the, the Schaefer Commission because its leader was Raymond Schaefer, who is this former Republican governor of Pennsylvania, who is kind of angling for a federal judgeship. And there was some uh, kind of rumors that maybe Nixon picked Schaefer because he could hold that judgeship over him, kind of a quid pro quo. You give me what I want, that negative report on pot, and I'll give you your judgeship. And so Schaefer embarks on two years of studying the problem in the United States. And in 1972, he and his commission published their findings. They come out with responses that are the exact opposite of what Nixon is looking for. They say, well, about 24 million Americans have used this drug, about 11 million are regular users, but they're not criminals, they're not mad, they're regular people like you and me. And by really targeting this drug and arresting them and giving them these criminal backgrounds, we're doing more harm than good. We believe that the drug should be decriminalized. It shouldn't be scheduled at all. You know, Nixon does not like these conclusions. He receives the report, says that marijuana will never be legalized in the United States, and essentially throws it in the trash and never talks about it again. And that is why marijuana remains a Schedule One drug today. What happened after Nixon resigned? Ford kind of avoided touching anything that the president had touched, and he started disengaging from Nixon's war on drugs quite rapidly. So while the federal government kind of tables the issue and just says, yeah, it's is Schedule One. We're not going to actually do anything to change that. On the states, a lot of action starts to happen. In the 1972 election, there were 11 states that between 1973 and 78 then adopted decriminalization laws based on the Schaefer Commission's recommendations. And the argument here for legalization or decriminalization is what fundamentally? What, what is, what is the, the argument that proves so successful at this particular moment in American culture? It's a really interesting one because it kind of turns the, 
the counterculture ethos that infused marijuana use in the 60s, it, it kind of turns that on its head. So Keith Strop, who is the founder of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, that forms in 1970, he, he kind of tried to make marijuana grow up a little bit, right? As the baby boomers were aging, they're graduating college. You know, they didn't want to stop smoking pot, but they also didn't want a criminal record. So normal is they're promoting it as, you know, I am an adult, tax-paying American individual, and I prefer to do this rather than drink a beer or have a glass of whiskey at night. I'm not hurting anyone else. I'm in the privacy of my own home. It's ridiculous for you to assign criminal blame to me for this activity, which is clearly widespread and clearly not causing uh, any problems, or, or, or so Strop would say. Right? There was defense of cannabis users as consumers. But, but, but an, opposition, an opposition is forming. And what is it that really prompts the backlash? Oh, yeah. Decriminalization also really caused pot to spread to the point where adolescent use of marijuana really started to spike to the point where by about 1979, 11% of high school seniors report smoking pot every day. And this made parents, most of whom were middle class and white, incredibly upset, almost to the level of terror. They essentially start to form kind of a grassroots counter army. And it's a total argument against adults' rights to use something in the privacy of their own home versus a child's right to grow up drug-free. What, what ultimately gives them the upper hand in, in this, this fight over marijuana in America? Uh, the election of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan. When he comes into the White House, he brings a very strong zero-tolerance approach to drug use with him. But it's his wife, Nancy Reagan, who really brings the parent movement's message to a national and international audience when she adopts the prevention of adolescent drug use as her main platform. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? You know, these ads and everything that they're so memorable and kind of hokey, right? But they worked. The rates of adolescent marijuana use absolutely plunged from their highs in the late 1970s. And during the early 1980s, when Just Say No is taking off, rates of illicit drug use in the United States are dropping, especially among kids. And all the all of the states that had decriminalized in the 1970s, all of those laws are overturned, certainly by the early 1990s. Okay, so I was a kid in the 80s, and I can tell you that all those TV ads and after-school specials had a big impact on my generation. That period also transformed the nation's criminal justice system. While First Lady Nancy Reagan was encouraging us to go drug-free, President Ronald Reagan was revitalizing the war on drugs, increasing enforcement, and making three strikes laws standard. The number of people in prison for drug offenses skyrocketed. At the same time, another swing of the pendulum was percolating as people rediscovered marijuana's medicinal capabilities. You know, gay communities in New York and San Francisco by the early 1980s are being just devastated by HIV. People got very, very sick very, very rapidly. And a couple of activists who were involved in the gay rights movement and also with marijuana started to realize that cannabis helped with a lot of these really awful symptoms of HIV. And they really transformed the reputation of this drug from something that was seen as this demonic presence that was destroying kids' chromosomes and ruining the future of America to a potential therapeutic for a group of individuals who were so sick but had really no other sources of care or concern. And this transformation from social menace to medicinal therapeutic ultimately was strong and powerful enough to pass the first medical cannabis law in California in 1996, and now 36 more, including Washington, D.C., in the, you know, going on 30 years since. 
How has medical marijuana gained such widespread acceptance when there's relatively little research to prove it is effective in all of the medicinal ways that the people claim it is? I mean, that's the incredible thing about, about pot. It really can kind of jump over whatever fences are put in front of it. And there is a lot of research on its therapeutic benefit, but at this point, it's fairly clear that its anecdotal evidence has been powerful enough to drive its acceptance. What has driven the the subsequent move towards legalizing recreational use? What starts to change in about 2010 is the addition of the racial component to the larger conversation about cannabis' legality. It was the growing number of legalization advocates that started forming in the wake of the passage of medical laws that made the connection. There's this huge number of arrests of Black people in the United States, and a lot of them are being arrested for marijuana possession. And it doesn't make very much sense that the cancer patient can have it legally, but this young Black man cannot, and now he's going to face 20 years and it's going to ruin his life. They started making very powerful arguments for the legalization of recreational use on the basis of social justice. And I mean, these conversations were heating up nationally in, in the 2010s, and that that conversation for legalization just piggybacked right on it and has become by far the most powerful argument in favor of legalization that we've seen yet. Interesting. So Emily Dufton, what what lessons do you take when you when you step back and look at the look at the arguments we're having, the the choices we're making as a nation and as states about cannabis today? What are the big lessons that you draw from this cyclical history that you've identified? I guess my big takeaway is that if it ever seems simple, it's not. <laughs> it's always more complicated. It's so funny, right? Because we always say like, oh, when we, when we talk about drugs, we should be rational. We should be clear-eyed. And like, yet we can't, right? Because drugs go to like the very, these core emotions that we have about things, right? Our children's safety, our freedom as individuals, things like that. Um, so it's very hard to make these rational laws because we're always caught up in emotion. Pot's a very emotional drug. People really care about it, right? It brings people into the streets for or against it. Um, but I think that's the thing. If we if we kind of probe this emotion and we see what it's really about, um, then we can try to make laws that are, I mean, I know I sound like a hippie, but I would like laws to be compassionate <laughs> and protect public health and protect public safety, but, but take care of individuals at, at their core. And to find a way to to do that with cannabis is, I think, you know, we're working toward it right now. I think we're having conversations unlike we've ever had before. Emily Dufton is a drug historian and author of Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops, Cole Cummings, and Vanessa Goodman, with help from Samuel Benson and me. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mocatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.